0: Hey Amen. Well, you can grab a seat. And if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Mark chapter one. That's where we've been kind of all summer as we've been looking at the gospel of Mark. We're still in the first chapter, making some progress. We might even end in the next two years. So, um, hey, R- Robbie was, was sharing this tonight and um, man, he was sharing about kind of shaking off the dust and and, and I was thinking about that metaphor. I didn't know he was gonna share it. And I was just kind of standing over there thinking about like, okay, we shake off the dust and we get moving and that's a good, healthy, right thing. Like, right, the Bible has this language of repentance, right? There's these moments where we've kind of been going the wrong direction. And we talk about repentance as the time we plant our foot in the ground and, and then we turn and go a different direction. But, but ultimately, here's what I need you to know. Um, you can keep shaking off the dust every single week, but, but until you t- start taking the Bible seriously in your life, the dust will continue to accumulate, Okay. Well, like here's what I've observed in my life as a pastor in a decade of being a pastor at this church. I have never met a strong Christian who doesn't take the Bible seriously. And I've never met a weak Christian who does take the Bible seriously. And I don't mean if you ever miss a day, you're not a good Christian. Or if you ever have a time where you stumble on the Bible, you're not a good Christian. Here's just what I've observed. The strongest Christians I know take the Bible seriously. And the people who are Christians and yet they struggle all the time with their faith in Jesus, they can never really get it together, have not historically to me been people who take the Bible seriously, who read it, who think about it, and most importantly, uh, allow it to pierce through the hardness of their heart and change their lives. And so tonight as we continue just thinking about, okay, how can we shake off that dust and move forward, uh, I want us to turn our attention not to ourselves, but to the word of God to see what Jesus has to say. So again, Mark chapter one, that's where we're going to begin tonight. We'll see where the spirit takes us. Uh, Mark. Mark chapter one, verse 29. If you're reading along in your Bibles, I encourage you to have your Bible um, every single week. I want you to know I'm not making this up. This is what God has to say. Mark chapter one, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and immediately they told Jesus about her. So if you were here last week, we saw Jesus' first miracle. He casts out a demon in a synagogue. And we talked through how when the people of God gathers, God shows up and he does miracles. He does incredible things. But most importantly, he teaches us. And in teaching us, he changes us. He transforms us. And then what we see right here in 29 is they leave the synagogue and they go to Simon's mother-in-law's house, which is this interesting little detail in scripture that gets thrown in only a few times where we get to recognize that Simon, Simon Peter, like the guy Peter, who's so famous in the Bible, he was married. You never hear about his wife. We never learn his wife's name. But the reason we know he's married is because he has a mother-in-law. And apparently his mother-in-law is sick. And so they leave the synagogue. In other words, like they leave church and they go home. And I think this is actually a pattern everyone here kind of understands intuitively, like every single one of you tonight are at church. You've come to church. God's gonna do something here at church. God might speak to you. God might convict you. God might move in you. But where are we all heading after? Don't say in and out. Church. <laughs> we go to church and we go home. We go home. whether well, home is your parents' home because you're home for the summer, you're living with them or, or you're just living with them for an unspecified amount of time, right? Or, or you live with roommates and you're in an apartment somewhere. You're going home tonight. And this is a familiar pattern for the people of God that we go to gather as a church and then we go back home. And the reason I wanna pause and linger on the idea that we go to church and then we go back home is because what we're gonna observe today is how the people of God surrounded by Jesus are gonna interact in the setting of their home. And here's what I wanna suggest to you tonight. I think this is important for us to consider that the most important thing about church is what happens after you attend The Most important thing about church is what happens after you attend the most important thing about our gathering tonight is what happens when you go home tonight to your roommates who didn't come here tonight or listen to your roommates who did come here tonight What happens when you go home and you see your mom what happens when you go home and you see your sister? See the most important thing about church isn't what happens here It's what happens as we go forth from this place Because I've always just been convinced. Um, I don't think it actually takes a lot of courage to raise your hands in church. Uh, I know for some of you, that might be a big step in your own life. But in the grand scheme of the world, I think it takes a lot less courage to worship boldly here than it does to witness faithfully out there. And and here's what I know. That what the real thing, like what's really happening in your faith is not demonstrated in what happens here. It happens in what happens when you go home. Uh, Like again, some of you are taking notes tonight. You're writing down, you're really leaned in, you're thinking about what God has to teach you. I think that's an amazing thing. Like I never wanna diminish what happens here as we worship and as we learn and as we grow together. But I need to remind you, the most important thing about what happens here is what happens later tonight, tomorrow at work, when your boss asks you to do something, when your sister frustrates you, when your mom says that thing you wish she wouldn't say. That's the important thing. I have a long, long time friend who's been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a very, very long time. And he has this phrase, and I've never forgotten it. He always tells me, he goes, Brian, if you want to know how my program is going, my, my recovery from alcohol is going, he says, don't ask the people at AA. They have no idea how it's really going. He says, if you want to know how my program's going, if you want to know how my recovery from alcoholic or alcoholism is going, you need to ask my family, because they'll tell you how it's going. They'll tell you whether or not uh, I'm not just not drinking, but I'm actually acting like a total jerk when I'm around them. They'll tell you what's really going on. My family will tell me. Why? Because the most important thing for him isn't what happens at Alcoholics Anonymous. It's what happens when he goes home. And the same thing is so true for our church. Uh, I want you to see how it continues this way. It says in verse 31, it says, so he, and this is Jesus, he went to her, this is Peter's mother-in-law, he went to her, took her, and helped her up. Like, keep your eyes on that verse, verse 31. Take your eyes right there. I just want you, if you're underlining or writing or anything in your Bible right now, highlighting in your phone, highlight. He went to her, took her, and helped her. Like, I want you to notice that Jesus heals this woman right now, but all the actions, all the verbs, all the actions are happening in and through Jesus. He went to her, he took her hand, he helped her up. And one of the things I'm always gonna try to point out when we're looking at the Bible is the moments when Jesus or God moves first. Like the big observation I'm always trying to make is that the Bible is not the story of how people reached out to God, it's the story of how God reached out to people. Like this is the consistent pattern in the Bible that that God loved us first, God saw us first, God moved toward us first, and and I think this is significant for us to linger on tonight, and here's why. I want you to imagine a hypothetical situation with me. Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know her name, but imagine years later, it's two decades later, and she's been healed of whatever this ailment is that Jesus healed her with. I want you to imagine she's sitting around having a cup of coffee with some of her girlfriends, and she's talking, and she shares the story of that day that she got healed. I want you to imagine the story goes this way. She's sharing with her girlfriend. She goes, I heard Jesus was in town, and I heard he was around. So I got up out of the bed, and I went to Jesus, and I talked to Jesus, and I said, Jesus, I think you can heal me, so Jesus, heal me. I want you to imagine she shares the story that way. I want you to imagine she shares the story of her getting healed by talking about how she went to Jesus and that's why she got healed. That would be silly, right? That would would be inaccurate. That, That wouldn't just be inaccurate, that would be a lie. That would be a distortion. That would show that she doesn't really understand what actually occurred when Jesus healed her. But do you know that there are a lot of Christians who speak exactly like that when they talk about how they came to Jesus? Do you know that there are a lot of Christians who talk this way when they talk about how they came to Christ and how they met Jesus and they made the decision for Jesus and they were lost, but then they chose to follow Jesus? And I think this is a significant thing. Like, I don't think this is just like mincing words or nitpicking on little ideas. I think this is significant. Write this down tonight, that you are not saved because you came to Jesus. Like, I need you to hear that. You're not saved because you came to Jesus. You're not forgiven because you came to Jesus asking for him. You are saved because Jesus came to you. That's the story of the gospel. Like the great story of the gospel isn't you realized you were a mess and came to Jesus. It's that before you even realized how desperate you were, Jesus picked you. He wanted you. He selected you. Uh, Like do you know that the great news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus opens wide his arms and says anyone can come. It's that he had his eyeballs on you. He had his sight set on you. When he was on the cross, he wasn't thinking of people in general. He was thinking of you and me and the names of everyone who would be saved. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came after you. And here's why I think this matters. Again, I don't think this is just sort of like theological like wordsmithing or us being picky. Like if you ever tell me your testimony and we're sitting down and you're like that, then I found Jesus. I'm not gonna be like, no, Jesus found you. Like that's not the point, right? It's not this like weird thing where we're never supposed to say that we did anything, but it's this recognition that even if we share the story that we came to church or we met Jesus, we recognize that it was always Jesus pursuing us before we wanted him. Like Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's why this matters so deeply. I think how you think you got saved will shape how you treat people. How you think you got saved, how you talk about how you got saved will shape how you treat people. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a friend of yours sins in some way that you consider immoral and egregious. They do something that you consider wrong and bad and something they shouldn't do. Here's one reaction you can have. You could look at that person and go, what a sinner, what a messed up person. How could she do that? How could he do that? Doesn't he know better? Doesn't she know better? Or here's your reaction. Your reaction becomes, you know what? I was that person and Jesus came and found me and loved me anyway. I was that person and Jesus wanted me anyway. Like I want you to imagine you encounter someone and they have an opinion that's wrong. Maybe someone on the internet. You ever notice everyone on the internet's opinion is wrong? And here's someone on the internet and they have a wrong opinion. You know what you might be tempted to do? You might be tempted to prove how right you are, how incorrect they are. You might be tempted to look down on them, to judge them. Maybe you've been doing that in the last couple of months because there's no shortage of opinions on the internet right now, and most of them are wrong. And so you look down on them. But, but here's what the person who says, you know what? I didn't find Jesus, Jesus found me. Here's what this person realizes. This person goes, you know what? And maybe you've never considered this. Um, do you realize that you were wrong about the most important thing in the universe, and that's God, and yet God picked you anyway? You ever thought about that? Like, like you were wrong, not just about some minor little opinion about something in politics or culture. You were wrong about God himself, and he didn't mind that. He said, I want you anyway. That's what happens when we start to go, Jesus found us. When someone wounds you, when someone betrays you, when someone gossips about you, throws you under the bus, when someone harms you, there, there is an approach to that that says they were wrong, and they hurt me, and I'm angry, I'm gonna get revenge. I'm gonna get even. I'm gonna get back at them. But the person who says, no, 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 Jesus found me goes, listen, I harmed God in every way possible. I turned my back, I spat at his name. I wanted nothing to do with him and he picked me anyway. But like every part of your life gets impacted by how you think you were saved. But like Sarah was up here earlier and she was talking about giving to the church. And I know some of you do that and I'm so grateful for those of you that give generously to the work of this ministry so we can serve people in this community all around the world. There's some of you who do this so you don't need to hear this right now. But here's what I think some people need to hear. Like, I think some of you hear that and you go, no, not me. It's my hard-earned money. You don't know how hard I work. You don't know how much money I make. I'll give sometime later in life. This is my money. I'm holding on to it. But the person who recognizes that they didn't find Jesus, Jesus found them, recognizes that God was generous to them before you had anything to offer God. And you still have nothing to offer God. And he's still generous to you. Like, that's how we respond to the gospel. The way you think you got saved will shape how you interact with every other human being in this world. Because if you think you came to Jesus, you have some kind of moral high ground on everyone, right? You're better than them. But the moment you recognize that Jesus came after you and it wasn't your doing, you have nothing to boast about, is the moment you start to see yourself just as desperate and in need of God as every other person who's here in this courtyard tonight and all around our city and all around our world. The text goes on this way. It continues in the back half of verse 31. It says, the fever left her and she began to wait on them. So again, this is Peter's mother-in-law and the fever leaves her. She gets healed. She's laying in bed and now Jesus picks her up and says, be healed. And by the touch of his power, it heals this woman. And then I want you to see what happens. It says, she begins to wait on them. She begins to serve them. She begins to do something for them. It's probably making them a meal or getting them a glass of water or helping them in some way, welcoming them into her home. And this is like this beautiful picture of what should happen in our lives when we come to Jesus. Do you know when you come to Jesus, the number one thing that should start happening in your life is you should start responding to the grace and mercy of God by serving other people and becoming a servant of Jesus Christ. Like this is what should be happening in your life. Uh, Like, if you want to ask me, what is the evidence? What is the fruit? What is the thing we can look at someone and go, because of that, I can tell they've actually been saved. Uh, I'm going to look at whether or not their life is dedicated to service. Their life is dedicated to loving others, serving others, being generous with others, being kind and gracious and humble with others. That's what she does. So she begins to wait on them. And there might be some of you, I think, um, that for whatever reason, and, and I think there are a lot of reasons, but I think one of the, the primary reasons is um, in our culture, this, this isn't like a real fun thing. Like in 21st century America, especially the fact that it's a woman, right? Like, like the woman begins to wait on them. And so there's ladies here who are like, you know, wait on them, wait on some man. What's this all? Like, they're kind of like mad about this and kind of like twisted up about this. And here's what I observe. Um, Jesus saves, Jesus rescues, Jesus shows mercy, Jesus shows grace, and the response is to wait on them. Here, here's what this tells me. Ladies, let me speak to you. Ladies, you have a calling in this world. And the calling you have in this world is to be a servant. To be a servant. To serve. That should identify, that should make up your entire existence. The moment Jesus saves you, you should serve just like Peter's mother-in-law does. And here's why I think that sits weird for some of you when I say this. Because I think you've forgotten the other half of the statement that's equally true. Gentlemen, men, You know what your job is? You know what your role is? You know what your identity is in this world? It's to be a servant. It's to serve. It's to give your life as a ransom for many, just like Jesus did. It's to lay down your rights, your desires, what you want, what you feel, and choose to serve others. Well, like, here's the way I'd put it. R- remember, like, when you were a kid and you'd go to functions and there would be a little name badge and you'd say, like, hi, my name is, and then there's a blank, and then you'd fill it in. And some of you had good handwriting. Raise your hand if you have good handwriting and you know it. You're just, you're, okay, you know it. And then raise your hand if you'd prefer to never write anything ever because it's a, dis- okay, that's, those, these are my people. Right? I'd write on that, Brian, and people would be like, your name is Brat." What? Like, it'd be very, the B was clear. Everything else was a mess. Here's what I want you to know that servant is the name badge of a follower of Jesus. That everywhere you go, People should just be remarking that you're serving. For some reason, she picks up trash when she doesn't have to at work. For some reason, at school, she seems to stay behind and do this thing and help these people. For some reason, he always seems to do the dishes in his apartment with his roommates, even when they aren't his. Servant should be the name badge you're known for, the thing people see in you. They should remark that about you. They should be impressed with that about you because that's what it is to follow Jesus. Uh, Like, if you think somehow you are above serving, If you think somehow serving is not for you, I just don't know that following Jesus is for you. But if you think following Jesus is somehow going to exempt you from serving, you've missed the entire point of the servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. Serving should be something that identifies your life. And if you wanna ask the question, and I've said this before, if you wanna ask the question, okay, how do I know if I'm a servant? Okay, if I'm supposed to be a servant, servant is the evidence that I'm really a truly born again follower of Jesus. Service is the thing. How do I know that? Here's what I've always said. A mentor taught me this, that you will know whether or not you have the heart of a servant by how you react when you're treated like one. You will know whether you have the heart of a servant by how you react when you're treated like one. When someone asks you to do something you don't wanna do, when you're asked to clean up a mess you didn't make, when you're asked to take on a project at work that someone else should be doing, when you're asked to help in a class or with an assignment or with something that someone's struggling with and you don't have time for it and someone just expects that you're gonna do it, how you respond in that moment tells me everything I need to know about whether you're a servant or whether you think you're above that. Here's the mother-in-law of Peter. Jesus heals her and instinctively she just knows she's responding to the grace and presence of God. By choosing to serve. And listen, this isn't some like thing where we're like, and here's a service project we all have. I don't have one for you, okay? Go find one. Go find somewhere to serve everywhere you go and everywhere you are. Every time your foot hits the ground in a place, people should go, that's a servant. She's willing to serve, he's willing to serve. Here's how it goes on in verse 32. It says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He he drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So you'll notice in verse 32, it says that evening after sunset, which is actually a significant part of understanding what's going on here for Jesus. So this happens in the evening after sunset. Remember where Jesus just was. He was just at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And if you don't know this, in Jewish thinking in that time and in Jewish thinking today, a day doesn't begin in the morning like it does for us. Like in the Western world, the day begins in the morning. So we say the morning is the beginning of the day. Not so for the Jewish people in the ancient world, not so for Jewish people today. For them, the day begins, the day actually begins at sunset. So right now, we would be beginning Friday. And I know that sounds strange to you, but the reason for that is that in Genesis chapter one, it would always say, and there was evening and there was morning the next day. And so in the Jewish mindset, the next day is actually beginning. Friday is beginning right now. So here's what happens. Friday afternoon, the sun is beginning to set. And for the Jewish people, that's the beginning of the Sabbath, beginning of Shabbat. And so Sabbath would begin Friday at sundown. And then as the sun is going down on Saturday evening, that's where we find ourselves right here, at the end of a day of rest. And here's why this is significant for us to understand. What does Jesus do immediately as the day of rest is ending? It says, immediately, the day of rest, the Sabbath, the day you're not supposed to do anything is ending. And that evening, people just start bringing sick people from all over. They're like, if you got sickness, come here because he's gonna heal you, right? And he does it. Like, Think about, read this and think about how intense this moment must have been. Jesus is coming off this day of rest and now he is working his tail off. He is healing everyone. He is teaching. He is casting out demons. He is all in on his work. And again, one of the things I want us to observe this summer as we look at the Gospel of Mark, is not just what Jesus teaches, but rather how Jesus lives, acts, and behaves. Like the idea of you following Jesus isn't just follow the explicit commands that came out of his mouth. It's that if you want to follow King Jesus and be like Jesus, you gotta look at how he lives and build your life into the same rhythms. And here's the observation I wanna make. Jesus comes off the Sabbath, which is a day of rest. And then immediately he jumps into a day of work. And I want to notice that Jesus doesn't blend those two things. Jesus doesn't have those things kind of like blended together. He has them hard separated. There's times of work. There's times of rest. And actually, right after this time of work, you're going to notice, we're going to get to it, Jesus goes into a time of prayer where he runs away from everyone. Jesus has his life very carefully planned. And the observation I want to make is this. I want to draw a contrast between what's often my life and yours and the life of Jesus. I want to point out this, that our lives are often marked, by, but sociologists would call this, continuous partial attention to our work. A lot of our lives, my life often, and perhaps your life, is marked by these three words. Continuous partial attention. You wanna know what continuous partial attention looks like? Continuous partial attention is when you are at a restaurant, or this never happens to you because you're better than this. Your friends are at a restaurant or some people you see are at a restaurant and they're all five sitting around the table and everyone is on their phone. That is continuous partial attention. You're kind of in on the conversation, but you're kind of on your phone. You're kind of paying attention, but you're kind of not. Continuous partial attention is the fact that some of you are here tonight at church, but you've gotten work emails. So you're thinking a little bit about work and a little bit about church. That's continuous partial attention. You know, this is a big plague in parenting right now. And I know not very few of you are parents right now, but there's this continuous plague of parenting where parents are like constantly sort of paying attention to their kids, but sort of on their phone doing something. They're giving their kids continuous, partial attention. I think some of you are at work sometimes. And rather than being exactly at work, working hard, ignoring the world, you're sort of at work and you're sort of checking Instagram. And when you're home and you're resting, you're sort of resting, but you're sort of checking emails or you're sort of studying or you're sort of working on a homework assignment you have. That's continuous, partial attention. But here's what I want to point out in Jesus. Jesus, the life of Jesus is marked by occasional, full attention. Continuous, partial attention, occasional, full attention. Occasional, full attention means Jesus on the Sabbath is resting because it's a day of rest. And the moment the Sabbath ends, he is working because it is a time of work. And then immediately after this, he goes into a time of prayer where he's alone and he doesn't want anyone to bother him because he needs to be with Jesus. And then immediately after that, he goes into another moment of work. This is Jesus's life. There's these moments of intense work and then moments of rest, moments of prayer, moments of teaching, moments where he's with a crowd, moments where he's alone. He has not continuous partial attention, but this occasional full attention. You know what I wanna suggest to some of you? I think this is why you're stressed out all the time, because you're never really doing anything. You're never really resting. On days you rest, you're sort of looking at emails and you're sort of working on schoolwork and you're sort of cleaning up around the house. Why don't you just pick a day of rest each week and rest, okay? And then when you're at work, you're not really working because you're kind of on your phone and you're kind of talking to your friends and you're kind of looking at social media and you're kind of thinking about what you're gonna do this weekend. Why don't you at work, you work. And when you come to church, you turn everything else off. And this isn't just about your phone. This is about what's going on in your head space. It's what's going on in your calendar. You just choose. When I'm here, I'm gonna be here. And then when I go to the next place, I'm gonna be in the next place. Our world trains you, disciples you in this constant partial attention. And here's Jesus. Modeling a very different lifestyle for us. And listen, it's not a command that Jesus gave us, but it's a way that he lives. And if we wanna live and love like Jesus, we gotta look at how Jesus lives. And I wanna challenge some of you that you have this constant, like, like continuous partial attention going on and it's stressing you out. And you need to reassess your life if you wanna live like Jesus does. Some of you need to, some of you need to go wrestle with that tonight uh, as you go home. Here, here's how the text continues, verse 35. So it's very early the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So remember, day of rest, intense evening of ministry where he is working hard. And then what does he do? The very early the next morning, and I want you to see this, he got up, he left, he went somewhere else, and he prayed. And here's what I want you to, again, observe about Jesus. This isn't a command that you're supposed to get up every morning and pray just like Jesus did, but it is something we see in his lifestyle. Here's the lifestyle of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just pray when it's convenient. Jesus decides, I'm going to get up early, I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to pray. There is like this effort. There's like this conscious effort of I've got to carve out some time to pray because if I don't do that, I'm not going to end up praying And I want to talk to you about prayer tonight because I think all of us in some level, I've just never met a Christian who goes, my prayer life is perfect, I have nothing to grow in. And if you are that Christian, come talk to me because I would be amazed. I think all of us need to grow in our prayer life. And I think all of us understand that our prayer life isn't quite what it could be. Let me talk to you about your prayer life in this way. I want you to imagine my relationship with my wife. Um, And and my relationship with my wife is, is not shocking or way different or out of the norm. It's just a pretty average, normal relationship between husband and wife. And here's what we do. There's three types of communication we have. Number one is just like pleasantries, right? In the morning, I say, good morning. At the night, I say, good night. When I'm leaving, I say, bye. And when I come back in, I say, hi, right? Like, this is is what we do, right? But, But here's what I need you to know. That's a way of prayer, Like there's a certain type of prayer where you roll out of bed in the morning and you go, God, uh, good morning. You know, like this is it. You don't have some big speech for God. You're just like, good morning, off to coffee. You know, like that's what you're doing. There's a way of communicating with God where it's just these pleasantries where you go throughout the day where, where you're just like, God, thanks for the food and God, thanks for a great day. And God, I'm exhausted and I'm going to bed, but I love you anyway. There's pleasantries. And then here's a second level of communication with my wife and I. It's just like communication throughout the day. It's just like me texting her uh, and we'll text back. But then there's not this like grand conclusion. It's not like, thank you very much and I appreciate you. And it's, it's just like an ongoing conversation. I, I think for some of you, that's a space where you need to increase your ongoing conversation with God. It's not like these grand moments of prayer. It's just throughout the day, like I'm texting, like you would text your best friend or your roommate or your mom. It never concludes, it never wraps up. It's just this unending conversation that you have with God. So there's pleasantries, there's conversation throughout the day, but here's what I would point out to you, and you don't have to be a relationship expert to get this. If all I ever did with my wife was pleasantries, like, hi, good morning, see you later, bye, good night, and all I ever did was text her throughout the day, there would be something significantly wrong with our marriage, right? If we never sat down for a couple hours and said, let's talk, if we never sat in a meal and just turned off our phones and focused on one another, there would be something wrong with our marriage, something wrong with our relationship. And my fear is that there are Christians who kind of like give God little prayers throughout the day, little prayers when a cop drives by and you're like, please don't give it take, you. you know, like that type of prayer. Like little things throughout the day or you're going to eat and you're like, God, thanks for the food, amen, right? Like you kind of do your little thing, but you don't ever carve out time like Jesus does here where he gets up, he leaves, he goes somewhere else and he prays. And I wanna talk to you about that kind of prayer tonight. because I think for some of us, that might be a game changer for you this summer where you do what Jesus did. Again, the command isn't carve out some time and go find a praying spot, but that's what Jesus did. And if you wanna live and love like Jesus, you've got to live and love like he did in his prayer life. So let me talk to you about what it looks like for you to gather in prayer, what it looks like for you to do like a dedicated prayer time like Jesus. like let me talk to you four keys for a fruitful prayer life. And and, and maybe specifically here, I'm talking about that prayer time where you just go spend time alone with the Lord. Um, Number one, schedule it, schedule it. You know what I find funny in my life? Um, This was true for years, it's not true anymore. I would schedule everything in my iPhone calendar. If I had a meeting, I'd put it in there. If I had an appointment, I'd put it in there. Sometimes I'd put things in there that didn't really need to be in there. They were just kind of reminders, like don't mess this up. I would schedule doctor's appointment, but I would never schedule time to hang out with the great physician. And I wonder for some of you if the reason you don't have prayer times with the Lord is because you don't ever put it on your calendar. Like you don't ever carve out time You don't ever decide. And listen, maybe for some of you, your life is so predictable, it needs to be every Thursday morning. It needs to be every Sunday night. It needs to be every Monday afternoon. For some of you, your life is super unpredictable and you never know when you're working or when you're in town or out of town and you need to sit down at the beginning of the week and just like you look at your calendar, you need to go, this thing's incomplete until there's a prayer time on it. You schedule a prayer time. You schedule time alone with the Lord. You create a space for it. That's number two. Uh, my recommendation is that your space is not your bed, okay? Because then it just becomes like an all night prayer of sleep, okay? Which, like, sometimes is real nice. Uh, but you schedule a place. I'm gonna go in my backyard. I'm gonna go to the top of the hill. I'm gonna go sit on a bench. I'm gonna go to the beach, wherever it is, somewhere. And it's gotta be somewhere reasonable, okay? Don't be like, I'm gonna go to Mammoth. Like, no, you're not, okay? Like, schedule it and put it in a place where you're gonna go regularly. And listen, it could be the chair in the corner of your room. But when you schedule it and there's a place you go to meet with the Lord, there's something so profound that happens when you say, that's the place I go to meet with Jesus, You schedule it, you create a space, you create a structure, okay? I know um, for some of you, prayer and structure don't seem to go together. I've always thought they do. Sometimes there's this idea that if you're a solid Christian, you'll just go into an hour of prayer time and sit there and, and you'll just know what to pray. And there are some of you who can do that. And if that's you, and you can just go with no structure, knock yourself out. But if that's not you, and you're a little more like me and you need some structure, create a structure. Sometimes it's a list of things you're gonna pray for and you're just not in a hurry. And you go, God, if you wanna add to my list, you can add to my list, but here's my list. Here's the way I like to pray. We've talked about this in YA before, but some of you are new here, so I wanna talk about when I have a prayer structured time, here's what I do. I think of concentric circles, you know, throwing the rock in the pond, and I begin by praying about me. Why do I begin with me? Because I know of no one more jacked up than me, okay? I know my flaws better than I know your flaws. I know my sin and my need for God more than I know your sin and your need for God. So I start by praying for me. And then I pray for my wife and for my children. And then I pray for my family, like my mom and my dad and my brothers. And then my extended family, I go out from there. And I pray for my aunts and uncles. And I have nine aunts and uncles on one side of the family and two on the other. So that takes a little while. But once I get past them, I start praying for my small group, the people I do life with. I start praying for my friends. I pray for the staff I work with here at Calvary. I start praying for the church as a whole. I pray for you, YA. I pray for you guys. And then I pray for our community, the Caneo Valley. And then I pray for the state of California. Lord, help us all, right? And then I pray for the United States of America. Lord, Lord, help us all. And then the world, like, oh my goodness, right? And then I try to pray when I pray for the world. I pray for peace and I pray for missionaries who are all around the world. And I pray for Christians who are suffering in countries in ways that you wouldn't even believe. And any Christian who ever said, I'm sorry, I'm getting off now. But that's what I do. So I I got got going. I need to bring it in. Okay. Here's what I do. I pray in these little concentric circles. Is that the best way to pray? I don't know. It's the best way for me. You find the best way for you. If that works for you, do it. If that doesn't work for you, don't do it. But have a structure. Have a space. Have a schedule. And then here's the final thing so many people miss out on when it comes to prayer. Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Prayer is not a one-way conversation where you speak to God. God speaks to you. And believe me, I believe God can speak to your heart in whispers. I believe he can speak outside of the scripture. But listen, real closely; He's never gonna say anything that contradicts the scriptures. I believe God can put something on your heart. He can move in you. He's never gonna say anything that contradicts it. But here's what I know for certain. When I read the Bible, I'm reading what God has to say for me. And so if you go into a prayer time and you don't ever use the Bible, you're not actually ever going to hear what God has to say to you. Bring a Bible with you. Choose to just bring it with you. If you're ever out of things to pray, just open the book of Psalms and just pray that because the book of Psalms is filled with these songs that are written from the bottom of hearts, this depth of emotion that you might be feeling in that very moment. Use the scripture. Allow God to speak to you through his word. Align what he says. Test what you think he's saying by the word of God, but allow the scripture to be there. Jesus has these times where he goes off and he just prays. And I don't know who's gonna listen to me tonight or who's never gonna do this or who's gonna do it. But I just wonder if there's some people tonight who need to decide that summer 2020 is the time you start actually doing that. Like before you go to bed tonight, schedule a time before next week that you're gonna come back, or not come back, that you're gonna go somewhere and you're gonna pray. Put that in your calendar and I promise you'll be glad that you did. Here's the final verse we'll look at tonight. Verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking For you so in other words like jesus goes off to pray and everyone's like you can't go do that which is like this great reminder if you schedule time to prayer you you know what's going to happen someone's going to want that time if you schedule time to pray that like satan's going to try to interrupt that and so if you think you're going to schedule time to pray and it's never going to get interrupted and every time it gets interrupted you give in to that interruption you'll miss the fact that that's exactly what satan wants for you it's going to be interrupted and why we know this Because Jesus' time was interrupted. Simon and his companions have to go look for him. And finally they find him. They're like, everyone's looking for you. And and Jesus is going to continue to pray. He's going to continue to have this time. And then he replies, let us go somewhere else, the nearby villages, so that I can preach there too. That is why I've come. So here's Jesus and he has his time of Sabbath and then he has his time of ministry and then he has his time of prayer early in the morning and then they come and find him and they're like, we got work to do. And he goes, yes, we do. Why? Because Jesus gives occasional full attention. In this moment, he goes, prayer time over. It's time to work. And Jesus gets after his work and he says, I'm gonna go preach in these villages. And then I want you to see the last words of verse 38 here. You can see it on the screen. You can see it in your Bible. What does Jesus say? This, like preaching, That is why I've come. Now, this is a really interesting thing for Jesus to say. Because if I asked you the question, why did Jesus come to earth? I suspect you wouldn't say to teach things, right? You would probably answer, Jesus came to earth to die for my sins, rise from the dead for my salvation, to show himself to be God Almighty, the son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ. That's why he came to earth. But what's really interesting is, that's absolutely true. And yet in this moment, Jesus goes, Right now, the reason I'm alive is so that I can preach in Galilee. Well, like in other words, I know Jesus knows he's going to the cross, he knows he's gonna rise from me. he knows everything that God has sent him to do, and yet he goes, This is why I've come to preach right now. Like in other words, he knows what God has for him, his purpose, his meaning, his mission. But right now, and this is the word tonight, Jesus has an assignment. He has an assignment, and the assignment is go preach in Galilee. Now here's the question I wanna try to kind of wrap up with tonight. I wanna ask you this question. What assignment has God given you in this season? Like what assignment has God given you in this season? Summer of 2020, July of 2020, the year 2020, the season of life you're in, what assignment has God given you? And listen, I know the answer is like glorify God. Yes, that's the big mission. Be faithful, trust him. All of those are good things. I mean, what actual assignment has he given you right now? But like most of you know, I have a two-year-old baby girl and I have a four-month child. Um, And so it's been this weird thing where like this entire stay-at-home pandemic, world is falling apart thing has happened right in alignment with his life. And so I've been home. I've been home more than I've ever been home in my adult life. You don't think I have an assignment here? Like this is my assignment. God goes to your home and your job isn't to mope around at home wishing you were out. It's to love your son, your four month old. You may never have this much time with him again. I have an assignment and my job is to hold on to that assignment. My job is to fulfill that assignment. I'm not gonna have an infant and newborn forever. It's for a season, not forever. And my question for you tonight as we close is, do you have an assignment? Are you aware of the assignment God's given you? Some of you are in college. Actually, raise your hand if you're in college right now undergraduate okay bunch of you um i'm not gonna predict anything about your life I'm, I'm just gonna predict it's pretty jacked up right now in terms of all your plans right yeah the plans of going back to the fall or like you were like oh i'm gonna go back and then like last week you got the email that said guess what you're not going back right and, and so life is kind of wacky we've been talking about this all summer things aren't the way you thought they were guess what you have an assignment god's given you an assignment your assignment is to be here for now You wanna go back to your school, you wanna go back to your dorm, you wanna go back to your apartment, you wanna go back to the city you go to college, and you don't get to do that now. God's given you a new assignment. Some of you are working from home, and you're not going to work, you're not going into the office like you used to. Guess what, new assignment time. God's given you a new assignment. Some of you right now are living with your parents, living with your family, and you've got a difficult family member, and some of them are here with you tonight, and you won't even say it out loud, but you've got a difficult family member. And you know what God's given you in this season? an assignment to love that difficult family member, to be with that difficult family member. Listen, some of you don't have a difficult family member. Some of you have a family member going through a difficulty. Some of you have a family member who is deeply sick right now, who is not doing so well, who is not healthy right now, and you have an assignment for them. One of the things I'll never forget in all my life, I have a dear friend, one of my best friends in this world, uh, whose name is J.D. Lasky. And J.D. Lasky, um, many years ago, um, while I knew him um, working here at this church, His mom got real sick and she had cancer and it was destroying her body. And yet JD, he never said this as much as, I just saw this in him. He didn't make a big deal of it, I just saw him. Like every moment he was there for his mom, he was with his mom, taking her to the hospital, loving her at her worst, loving her at the moments where it was just unbearably painful, unbearably difficult. And he was in it completely till the moment she took her last breath. Do you think he was glad he took up the assignment? Like I watched this man take up this assignment. I watched this man say, this is an assignment where I'm her son and I'm gonna love my mom until her last breath. He took up the assignment. Rather than resisting the assignment God gave him, he stepped into the assignment that God had for him in that season. And here's the question for you. What's this assignment that God has for you right now? What's the thing that God has on your plate right now? It's not forever. It's not forevermore. It's just for right now. Because here's what I think I need to say to someone here and maybe it's just one person. I need you to stop resisting the assignment God gave to you. Stop resisting, stop pushing away, stop fighting against, stop resisting the assignment God gave you. You know, this has been a weird week for me. Um, I wanna confess to you, it's actually been a terrible week for me. And I don't mean it's been hard on me. I mean, I have failed in every way um, to live up to the assignment God gave me Uh, on Monday. Uh, my wife uh, had an injury to her back. And so all week, she's been laying on the couch. She's not been well at all. Like her bit, her back is just filled with pain. She's going to the chiropractor. She's getting people to help her. She's got a doctor, an MRI, the whole bit, right? All this is happening. She's in so much pain. And, and so this week, what happened was it very quickly changed from like a normal average week where everything was going good and I got to go about my life and do ministry and do work how I wanted and how it was predictable for me. It turned from that in a heartbeat into your job is to take care of your wife She's not allowed to move, so you gotta get her everything. You gotta do everything for her. And in addition to that, you gotta do everything for your two year old and everything for your four month old. And you've gotta work and you've gotta write a sermon and you've gotta do it all. And I would love to tell you that I was like, Lord, I am your servant. (laughs) But that's not what happened. I was filled with just bitterness. and Not even at my wife. It's like, she, she hurt her back. It wasn't her fault, but I was like, I can't be mad at you. And you're two years old. I can't be mad at you. And you're four months old. You're super cute. I can't be mad at you. So when you're not able to be mad at the people around you, who do you get mad at? God. You go, how'd you do this to me? Why well, you gotta put me in this spot? And then you get mopey and then you get whiny and you start being frustrated and you start feeling like a victim and you start feeling like, oh, woe is me. And this is me all week. And then I had to write this stupid sermon, right? And here I am talking about this assignment I'm writing. I'm like, ah, fulfill your assignment. Don't resist your assignment. And God's like, hey. <laughs> and at that moment, I didn't like being a pastor, but I loved being a follower of Jesus because what a follower of Jesus does is says, whatever my assignment is right now, I'm gonna do it. Even if it's inconvenient, even if I wouldn't have picked it, even if I wouldn't have liked it, even if it would be easier for me to do something else, I'm going to live into that. The Lord's just been convicting me all week that we have these assignments sitting in front of us. And rather than stepping into it saying, God, you're in control and you're in control of everything. And so if this is my lot in life right now, I'm in on this. Rather than doing that, we resist and push away. And maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think I am. And I wonder if anyone here tonight just needs to turn and repent from the fact that you are resisting the very assignment that God dropped in your lap for this season and instead to be just like Jesus who steps into the very moment that God gives him, who says, this is why I've come. Listen, you're alive to follow Jesus and to glorify God and be faithful and trust him in everything, but there is an assignment God has given you for this season. It won't be forever, and so you hold on to it. You grab onto it. You stop pushing away for it. Maybe during worship tonight, our worship band will come up right now, but maybe during worship tonight as you sing, you need to sing these lyrics and just go before the Lord and go, I don't like the fact that I'm home. I wish I was there. I don't like the fact that I can't go back to college. I wish I was at school. I don't like the fact that I have to be in this situation, in this moment, in this unemployment, and this thing what's going on right now. But Lord, that's the assignment you have for me. And so I'm in on that. That's what I invite you to do tonight. And maybe that can begin for some of you right now. I want you to bow your heads in prayer with me. And I wanna give you an opportunity just to do some business with the Lord. Maybe it's on the fact that you don't really have a prayer time and you need to just decide tonight that you're gonna find a prayer time. You're gonna put it on your calendar before you go to bed tonight. Maybe there's an assignment that you've just been resisting in this season and you just need to get before the Lord and do some business and allow him to do some heart surgery on you tonight. Maybe it's the fact that there's no boundaries in your life and you're always working, you're always resting and you haven't decided to really focus on anything. Maybe God needs to do some work in your heart tonight. I think one of the most powerful things we pray at the end of a sermon is, Holy Spirit, what do you wanna teach me? Holy Spirit, how do you wanna change me? Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in me? Even to those of you listening online right now through our live stream, I want to ask you, what does the Holy Spirit want to do in your heart and your life tonight? Because whatever it is, it's good. Whatever God wants to do, however painful it is, it's good. So Father, thank you for tonight. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the assignments you've given each of us in every moment. God, help us step into them. In prayer, help us have boundaries, help us to be the people who leave this place changed. God, Holy Spirit, I don't even know what you need to say to everyone here tonight. I just know that you're good and that if we respond in obedience, we'll be glad we did. So Father, meet us here now. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on this place. Stir our hearts for Jesus. Help us be more like him. In Christ's name, and everyone prayed. amen.